Hello and welcome to another episode of the Heart Chamber Podcast. I am your host, Boots Knighton. I think the stress over COVID really took a huge toll on me, especially on my health. I was just sitting in the break room around, I would say, September, so literally three years ago. I was sitting in the break room just talking with some of my coworkers, and I just felt this you know, pressure on my heart. I'm like, oh, this is it. Like, this is the chest pain I've always talked about with my patients. Like, I've never felt this chest pain before in my whole life. Welcome to the Heart Chamber, hope, inspiration, and healing. Conversations on open heart surgery. I am your host, Boots Knighton. If you are a heart patient, a caregiver, a healthcare provider, a healer, or are just looking for open-hearted living, this podcast is for you. To make sure you are in rhythm with the Heart Chamber, be sure to subscribe or follow wherever you are listening to this episode. While you are listening today, think of someone who may appreciate this information. The number one way people learn about a podcast is through a friend. Don't you want to be the reason someone you know gained this heartfelt information? And if you haven't already, follow me on Instagram, two different places, at boots.nighton or at the Heart Chamber Podcast. You can also find me on LinkedIn as well as Facebook. But enough with the directions. Without further delay, let's get to this week's episode. Hello, Jackie, and welcome to the Heart Chamber podcast. I am so thankful that you have agreed to come on and share your story of hope and healing after open heart surgery. Hi, Boots. Good morning. Thank you for inviting me to your podcast. I really appreciate it. Yes. Well, and I know it takes a lot of courage to come on to a podcast. You never know who's going to listen. And my podcast has been downloaded in 24 countries and every state, which is so amazing. And so your story will be heard far and wide. And it's an important one for two reasons. Uh, For my listeners, Jackie is a nurse and she was in her nursing career already in the pandemic and has some really intense stories to tell from that. And as the pandemic was unfolding, Jackie started to struggle with her heart. And so it was this simultaneous issue for her and it kind of mirrors my story in some ways. And so Jackie and I have just connected over that. And then Jackie and I also connected thanks to a national organization called Women Heart. I'll have ways to connect with that organization in the show notes, but I was able to find Jackie and ask her to tell her story through Women Heart. So let's just dive in and set the scene you live in Los Angeles. Yes. Yes, I do. And how old are you now? I am 31 at the moment. Yes. During the pandemic, I was about 28. Pretty, I'm going to say still young. <laughs> so in 2020, I was working at a hospital called uh, Cedar sinai which is one of the major hospitals here in Los Angeles. 
Um, at, during that time, I was uh, working as a floor nurse for the telemetry unit. And also, we were one of the first units to become the COVID unit. So lots of, I wouldn't want to say pride into it. I would say a lot of fear into it. Because during that time, we just don't know what COVID did to us. We all knew that, you know, it was just kind of taking people out one at a time. And it was just a huge, huge stress on us. Through my point of view, as a nurse, it was just heartbreaking left and right. It was just deaths, I'm going to say lots of deaths, at least three times a shift. And it's three times a shift. That's a lot. That's way more than what we're all used to as nurses. And it was just, you know, heartbreaking because the families of the ones who passed, their last moments with their loved one is through FaceTime. And even setting up that FaceTime is it's a struggle. It's a struggle. It was a really hard time, actually, just kind of recalling mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. When you recall that now, like, what do you experience in your body? I'm going to say indifferent. You know, there is some sense of depression in a way. But otherwise, it's my body kind of clicks like, hey, we got to be in work mode, you know. I can't really dwell too much on what I used to feel back in 2020 because I don't want that to take away from where I am right now. If I dwell Mm -hmm. too much on it, I feel that I won't be able to function life as it is right now. So you've compartmentalized. Yes. You've compartmentalized 2020. Yeah. I felt like it's such a huge moment, but I just choose to kind of keep it in the back of my mind. Like... This happened, we lost two years, and for me, I have to move on, especially in my in my line of work. Every now and then, we have families come over, and then they talk about it. Like, I have, you know, I have no, no problems talking about it. But on my end, I just kind of have to treat it as, you know, water off a duck's back. Like, mm-hmm. I, I, I can't dwell too much on it. I don't want it to take anything from me at the moment. I just have to move on. During that stressful time... I think the stress over COVID really took a huge toll on me, especially on my health. I was just sitting in the break room around, I would say, this month, September, September 2020. So literally what, three years ago, I was sitting in the break room just talking with some of my coworkers and I just felt this you know, pressure on my heart. I'm like, oh, this is it. Like, this is the chest pain I've always talked about with my patients. Like, I've never felt this chest pain before in my whole life. I tried resting, didn't work. Tried walking around, did not work, would not go away. It was just the slightest chest pain, and I'm freaking out over it. I'm like, oh, my God, I know this. I know I'm not supposed to work right now, but, you know, I just, I had to. It's 4 o'clock in the morning. I have about until 7 to, like, to sign out of work and... You know, I just only, I only told one person and it wasn't my charge nurse. (laughs) It was one of my coworkers who I will not name for privacy reasons. Like he was such a huge help to me. He helped me pass my meds. He helped me make sure that my charting was on point. And, you know, he made me make it to the end of the shift. By the end of the shift, I called my, well, now husband, but during that time he was my boyfriend. I called him. I was like, hey, I need you to meet me in the emergency room. I just felt some chest pain. And then he said, okay, I'll meet you there. What did this chest pain feel like? Definitely 
I would say a miniature horse pressing on my chest. It wasn't as bad as I thought it would be, but I just felt that slight pressure that would not go away. And I just knew, I'm like, I can't take this for granted. I'm not going to wait until it gets stronger, but even though I did. But, you know, it just felt like a very, very, like, tiny pony on my chest. I'm like, okay. It's somewhat manageable. I'm still breathing. I'm not sweating as much. I checked my blood pressure. It was pretty okay. Like, not to a point where it's, you know, dangerously high. So I told myself, okay, make it out till like 7 o'clock. At least during that time, I had the resources to really check myself. I'm like, okay, I think I can make it till the time. So as soon as I went to the emergency room, they checked out my blood work. They did echoes and stuff. Of course, they told me my, you know, my health history. They're like, oh, did you know that you have ventricular septal defect? And I told them, yes, I've had it since birth and it's nothing new to me. And they checked my troponin levels, which is like a cardiac marker to check if I have any like indications of a heart attack. It's negative. Everything came out clear. I was like, oh, so where did this chest pain come from? And then the ER physician told me it's probably the stress. And I was like, hmm, I think maybe the stress could have aggravated it, but I know there's some kind of underlying problem to it. That was just your intuition saying that to you. Yeah, exactly. So the ER physician said, "Uh, it's okay. I'm going to let you go home and just, you know, take a rest. You'll come back to work next week. And I was like, hmm something in me did not want to say yes to that. So I just kind of like left them thinking like, I'll probably think about it. So the ER physician called my primary care physician and my primary got so upset. He was very, very mad. He's like, don't you know that this is her first time having chest pain? She's never had chest pain in her whole life. In the 28 years that she's been in life, she's never had it. So why are you letting my patient go? And you had you already left the hospital? No, I stayed. I waited. And then I was looking at, I was looking at my boyfriend. I was like, no, I'm going to wait this out. Let's see what they say. So the air physician told me that, oh, you know, you're, I called your primary and your primary said that he wants you to stay in for a cardiac workup. And I'm like, okay, let's go. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. She gave me the choice whether to go home or to stay to have a cardiac workup. And I'm like, okay, let's just stay for a cardiac workup. Why not? I don't have anything else to lose. So we did the whole cardiac workup, which took about two days, a two day hospital stay. They did the full blown like 2D echo, chest X-ray, TTE. And what is that for our listeners who may not know? TEE, which is the transesophageal echocardiogram is when they sedate you. They actually sedate you and put a I would say a probe down to your throat so that they can directly visualize your heart structurally. It gives them a better visual than a 2D echo, basically. So they can see how it functions. They can see how all the valves are and all that stuff. So from their readings after the uh, TEE, they saw that I have a rare condition among adults called double-chambered right ventricle or DCRV which is normally seen in children or babies, but extremely rare in adults. And they also saw that not only did I have a a VSD, I also have a patent foramen ovale, which is another hole on the septal wall that separates my 
two atriums. So I'm like, wow. I was kind of like shocked because, you know, all this time I, I only thought that I only had one heart problem. I just had a bunch going on, basically. What was that like, learning all of that? That's a lot to learn about your heart. Overwhelming. Very overwhelming. I think it took me to a point where, like, I thought it was only one measly problem, but it just turns out into one huge problem. Like, with DCRV, I would say I had, like, five chambers at one point because the right ventricle split into two. So it's giving up two different pressures, so my heart is just like overwhelmed. It's mixing all this unoxygenated blood and oxygenated blood. My like my body is not getting, you know, the full oxygen throughout this whole lifetime at that point. So to kind of like be told that, hey, you have so many problems and you have a rare heart condition. And I'm like, oh, in some ways I'm glad that they found it. Like, wow. In another way, I'm like, oh, why me? Yeah, you go through like this bargaining phase, right? Or like disbelief, and then there's the victim phase, and it's, it is the stages of grief when you learn that the main organ that keeps you alive is compromised. And just knowing that during that time, I was still being active. I hike, I work out, you know, I, I told myself I do get a little bit shorter breath, and I can't keep up with others. I knew that, but in some ways I'm like, you know what, at least we know the problem and let's see what they have in store for us when it comes to the solution. So my congenital heart specialist, I'm going to call her name, Dr. Rose Tompkins. (laughs) She was an angel. I loved her so much. She said, you know, we have to uh, do open heart surgery on you. And then she told me, you know that, right? And I'm like, yeah, but to hear it, you know, to actually hear it, from a doctor in a setting where, you know, there's a pandemic going on and I'm 28, I'm supposed to, you know, live a life where I'm actively traveling, working, all that fun stuff. Like to kind of hear that going through my mind and it's something that I needed to process. I I was crying. I was crying. I asked her, is catheterization not a possible intervention that we can do? She's like, no. <laughs> no that's a reasonable ask, yeah, it though, is. because there's a lot of heart things that can be fixed through catheterization. So that's a reasonable right. ask. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then she said, no, your heart has been so compromised that it's it's very complex. It's a complex case. This is something that we need to do through open heart surgery. We can do more with open heart surgery than what we can do with a catheterization. So basically, I would be wasting my time if I opted for a cath procedure. So I'm like, you know what? Let's go. Let's do the open heart surgery. And then during that time, I tried going back to work. I did one shift and I told my manager, I'm like, I can't. I think the stress and the anxiety of knowing that I have an upcoming surgery with the potential of it being canceled due to COVID, like it's too much. Like I need to take some time off. So she allowed me. Graciously, she allowed me for like a whole month before my procedure, like I could be off and then right towards when I'm better, then I can come back to work. So throughout that whole entire month, I was, you know, just sitting in my thoughts, just what what's going to happen after surgery? I hope I'm better after surgery. And through that whole process, I was like, oh, what if something goes wrong? <laughs> you know, it's that little tiny person in the back of your head, like, what if something goes wrong? How can I prepare 
the my loved ones for that. And during this time, like, you know, I didn't really think much about advanced directives because I was just so caught up in the moment. I just wanted to do it kind of informally through my boyfriend, actually. I trusted his judgment more than my own mother because I know my mother, she has her bias. She wants me to stick around. I feel that, you know, if I'm not 100% what I am right now, and if my life requires a ventilator, if it requires a feeding tube, I don't want that. I've seen it. I've seen it so many times in my career. I've seen so many families just, you know, having these weird dynamics because of that. I do not want that at all. Yeah, you've had a front row seat to a lot in the medical world. Yeah, I I can't really say much about it, but it's horrible. The family dynamic that revolves around a loved one who is on life support. There are some that are very gracious, but there are just some that I really can't say much about. It's just monstrous. And I do not want that. I wish I can explain that, but I'm in this career. I need to keep this job. So as long as I'm in this career, I really can't say much. But if I'm out of it, then I can, you know, just say what I want. But I do not want that for my family. So that's why I decided to tell my boyfriend. He is part of the medical field, too. And he also knows what happens. Is he also a nurse? He's actually a physical therapist. So, I mean, he doesn't really see what I see, but he understands. He's seen the families that I've seen who decide certain things, and it's just, uh, just feels wrong, you know. But I feel that he does not have a bias for me, and he would just follow what I wanted because, you know, he gets it. And I told him, no ventilator, no feeding tube. If I'm not 100% what I am right now, I just want to go peacefully. No trouble. And he said, okay. And this was informal. I did not go through any notary to have like advanced directives or anything like that. So, you know, it was just a lot of paperwork to be done. And I just feel like maybe I'll just take this chance to just do it informally. And then surgery day came. I was excited. I was to a point where (laughs) I put myself in uh, ventricular tachycardia at one point. Like I saw my heart jump up to like 160s for a little bit. And they're like, oh my God. I was like, I'm fine. I'm just very excited. I'm so sorry. (laughs) Ma'am, I'm sorry. We're all good. I am breathing. I'm just a little too excited. And, you know, I talked to some of these nurses because they know, like, all the nurses talk. They're like, oh, she's in this unit. Like, this is a nurse in this unit. I know it's HIPAA, but amongst nurses, like, you know, I was okay with it. They're like, oh, you're a nurse too. I was like, yeah, I'm a nurse. And I'm like, thank you for taking care of me, of course. Like, I don't want to give you guys a hard time. With the exception of the VTAC, I'm sorry for that. So So they prepped me up for surgery. They said, like, wow, you're going to have a huge surgery and you're so young. And I'm like, yeah, but better now than never, honestly, right? Like, I want to, you know, keep this thing going. I want to keep my life going. And, you know, they were pleasant ladies to talk to. Before the big date came, my surgeon talked to me over FaceTime. He was explaining to me what is to be done during um, surgery. So he told me that I'm going to try to make a small cut on your, you know, on your chest. And I'm like, doc, you don't have to make a small cut. Just make it enough for you to work. I don't care how big it has to be. Like make it optimal, make it optimal to your, you know, comfort level. I like, I don't care if you have to go down even further just let me live. (laughs) So what he did is he said that he will shave off a couple muscles 
because of my heart was pumping so much and so strongly that it grows extra muscle, like how normally a body does. Like when you're a bodybuilder, your muscle grows. Same thing with your heart. So all these little muscles that are not supposed to be there, he shaves off just a tiny bit of it. Which part of the heart, which chamber? Was that in the ventricle? It was the right ventricle. He did the most, I believe. Yeah. He shaved off some of that, but not all of it because he was too afraid that some of it might develop a blood vessel over time. And he did not want to risk me bleeding out from that point. And then he also patched up the two holes with a prosthetic, I believe it's a prosthetic patch. I'm not entirely sure what material it was, but he patched up the patent foramen ovale and also my ventricle septal defect. So those are patched too. And I think during surgery, he did see some regurgitation on my mitral valve. So he had to go back in and kind of fix it a little bit. Do you know how he fixed it? Like, did he put in a clip or? No, no, he, I don't think he put in a clip. No, he didn't put any prosthetic too. I think he just shaved off some of the muscles that was around that portion as well. So was your heart stopped? Yes. For how long? They told me that the surgery lasted until about 1 p.m. So five hours. Wow. And then when I woke up, I was in the ICU. First thing I asked the nurse, I'm like, oh, what fluids am I on? Because, you know, it, the nursing brain never turns off. I mean, it can turn off a little bit, but, you know, there's always a curiosity as to what you're on because you know what to ask. So I woke up. Oh, my God. I had the central line on my neck. I had the chest tube on my body. Then I had the Foley catheter on too. And I had like two extra IVs for some reason. (laughs) And then I'm just like, wow, I feel great. During that time, I didn't feel any, you know, pain on my chest. I was like, oh, this, you know, this feels good. I saw that on my scar here, they put skin glue instead Mm -hmm. of staples. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. They opted for skin glue instead. So I got up, they had me getting up on the first day after um, surgery, which is, you know, you have to push yourself to just walk at least on your first day of surgery because you don't want to get those blood clots. Those things are like nasty. They take months or even like um, a year to be, you know, to be completely like dissolved. And uh, hey, educate us real quick on that. Tell us a little bit more about how truly nasty blood clots are. Yeah, quick time out and do that. This is also part education for all of us listeners. Sure, sure. So usually post-surgery, it, with any kind of surgery, whether it's ortho where you had open heart surgery or you know, you just had your gallbladder removed, that anesthesia knocks you out for a little bit and your limbs are not like, you know, there's no not really blood circulating. It's very very slow especially when you lie down for a long period of time, let alone, you know, five hours into the surgery, you're not moving whatsoever. So in order for you to prevent blood clots from traveling anywhere, whether it's your brain or your heart or any other limb, you got to mobilize, you have to walk. Or if you can, you have these sequential compression devices, which are those little like the massagers on your calves that hospitals use, or sometimes like the doctors would prescribe some heparin shots as a prophylaxis to prevent blood clots from forming. Those are like some of the things that they would usually order for patients who just got out of surgery. So my surgeon, he said, uh, you have a choice, whether you walk now or you get heparin. 
throughout your whole stay here. And I'm like, yeah, let's walk. I don't want any shots on my belly. I'm good. No more, no more punctures, please. No more cuts. So I was walking. I felt fine. It was a small ICU unit. I just did like three laps. You know, I was sitting up on the chair when I wanted to, and then I would lay back down. You know, I just really wanted to kind of take that moment to, you know, just exercise my limbs and make sure that, you know, my function is good. And then I guess during um, my transition from ICU going to a step-down unit, they saw that my blood pressure was low. I would say about, it hit like 87 over 54 or somewhere there. They kind of freaked out a little bit. But to me, I was like, "Mm, maybe my heart is trying to uh, function itself at a slower and more steadier rate. You know, it was used to pumping a lot and strongly, but then now it has to kind of reconfigure itself to pumping more slowly and more like efficiently. It had just been remodeled. Yeah, exactly. Just give it some time to kind of like rehab itself into a normal heart. They actually bolused me with one liter of fluids. And then after that, I got pulmonary congestion. So I was fluid overloaded. I was swollen. And the worst part was I felt like I was drowning. It was so bad. I'm like, I had this heart surgery. I have a cough and I feel like I'm drowning. Like that's a lot of pressure that goes into the heart. Yeah. And that's a lot of pressure that goes into the sternotomy that was done. I was crying my eyes out because I've just, I just felt like pain almost 24 seven. And from that, like during that time, I did not have my Foley catheter. So I was, I wasn't really peeing out as much fluids as they gave me. It was just kind of like little by little. And I'm just like, wow, I just feel so like I'm drowning. I'm crying. And I'm like, okay, you guys do something for me. (laughs) Yeah. Did they give you LASIK? They gave me LASIKs. Yeah. I was on 80 milligrams of LASIKs twice a day. That's a lot, right? Yeah. For the first day, 80 milligrams of LASIKs. I was going to the bathroom and I was just like crying my eyes out for the pain. And the pain medications like that they gave me was not working. Like IV Dilaudid, IV Morphine not working at all. I just ended up vomiting, which made things a lot more worse. And I was dry heaving and I was just crying my eyes out, holding my pillow against my chest, trying to stop my chest from popping out, from coughing too much. I felt so miserable. I was just like, oh my God, this is the worst pain ever. Like the best way that I can describe this pain is imagine a huge dagger that's burning. Let's say a smith was smelting this huge dagger and he's pressing it against your chest and it's burning and he just keeps pushing on it. He's not letting go. I don't want to imagine that. No, (laughs) it's terrible. (laughs) This is terrible. That's the best way that I can describe that kind of pain. And I have a pretty high pain tolerance, but that pain was just, it was just another level. I was crying my eyes out and I just feel like this sharp, burning axe just pressing against my chest. And I'm like, you know what? One of these days, I'm going to never forget this kind of feeling because this is the feeling that people should, I wouldn't say expect, but kind of like keep that in mind because that's how it feels. That's the best way that I can get people to kind of understand like, wow, that's a huge deal. So what worked out for me is they put a pain consult for me. My pain was so out of control that they had to put me on Tylenol around the clock. They put me on Tramadol as well, 50 milligrams. 
I believe they also did oxycodone. Oh, no, Percocet. Percocet. They put me on Percocet around the clock as well. I could not take any IV, like Dilaudid, no IV morphine whatsoever. I had to stick with that whole routine. And they also put me on Colchicine. Colchicine is an anti-inflammatory medication that's usually prescribed for people with gout. But when you think about it, it makes sense because your heart's kind of inflamed as well. And the surgery site is also inflamed as well. So that kind of helps bring down the inflammation. So I was kind of skeptical as to why they gave me some colchicine, which is actually for people with gout, but you know, they explained it to me that way. And I'm like, okay, that makes sense. That really does make sense. And did they know you were a nurse? Oh yeah. I bet it was a totally different experience for all of you guys working together to get through this hard chapter. Yeah. And I was thinking like, if I was just a regular patient... Maybe I would have some differences in care because my manager like visited me when I was in the hospital and gave me like a little basket. And in Cedar sinai I don't think they would treat anyone different. They just knew that I was a nurse and they just wanted to make sure that I'm good. But with any other patient who goes through this kind of thing, you would have to expect the same amount of care because, you know, that's how pretty good they are. They would actually talk about my case a little bit because it's such a rare case. And I'm not even sure if it's on a study at the moment, but I don't know. Maybe in the future it will be. But the it was pediatric surgeon that worked on me. I think I was the oldest patient that he ever worked on because he, he does his surgeries as well with Children's Hospital of Los Angeles. He just started working at Cedar sinai as well. And I believe I was his first case ever. So I feel like, you know, the stars kind of aligned at that moment. You know, having open-heart surgery... I was bound to get it, but it was kind of like, when, when is it going to happen? And I was lucky. I was very fortunate enough to have it done at a really good hospital, have it done by a very, very extremely good surgeon. And the rest was pretty much a blur. How long were you in that really painful state with the fluid overload? How long did that last for? That lasted me about two weeks. So how long were you in the hospital? Oh, I was in the hospital for about six days, actually. But the pain just kept going until the inflammation kind of like subsided. But the fluid overload subsided about two days after I left the hospital. The pain subsided about two, three weeks after the discharge. Uh, I just had to be on that pain medication regimen. And that kind of zonked me out, honestly. I was being told like, Jackie, you have to walk, you have to walk, you have to walk during, when, during my hospital stay. And they required me to walk four times a day during that time. And I was fluid overloaded and I was in pain. And I was just like, even walking was like a pain because I was short of breath as well. And I was complaining. I was like, wait, you're telling me to walk and I'm in pain. And I'm like literally drowning in my own lungs. I'm only going to do one lap and then I just need a rest. I really need a rest. The recovery was, I would say, difficult. I I mean, not only physically, but mentally as well. A lot of people don't really realize that, you know, it's not only the body that you need to recover, but it's also this. For those who can't see what you just pointed to, you mean your mind, your emotional, mental state. Yeah. So... The physical recovery took me about a year, a year to fully kind of run, 
running was my gauge of quote unquote success for my goals. The first time I walked or jogged around a block without getting tired, I was with my boyfriend. He was crying behind me because he never saw me like, you know, just pushing myself and just having no problems with running or jogging around. And then from that, I just kept building myself over and over again. I gave myself little goals. I'm like, okay, I'm going to walk. I'm going to jog around the block once. Let's jog around the block twice. Let's try hiking a little bit. Oh, let's try, you know, the rock climbing came a little bit later, but we focused more on like cardio. And then I told myself, let's try lifting when I was cleared to, you know, lift weights and stuff. I was getting stronger. I was getting back to my baseline, actually, but actually better than my baseline. A year after surgery, I was able to complete the LA Marathon. Oh, wow. That is amazing. Congratulations. Yeah. Thank you. It's always been a bucket list of mine. I knew like before the surgery happened, I could never complete that marathon. I told myself like one day, one day when everything's all good, one day when I have my surgery, I'm going to complete that. And I did. I, I completed it after, I would say, eight or nine hours with my boyfriend. I still have that video of me crossing that finish line. I was crying my eyes out. I was really crying my eyes out. That was the ultimate goal of mine. And I finished it. And then after that, after I finished the marathon, I hit this wall. I just didn't know what wall I hit at first. I was like, why do I feel sad all of a sudden? Why am I crying? Every now and then I was crying about something, but I just don't know what it is. There are times where I'm like, I just don't feel like working out. I just had bouts of depression after my marathon. And I just didn't know why. For like the longest time, I did not know why I was feeling that way. Up until I believe it was, it was the time where I went to Minnesota for to meet up with everyone at Women Heart. I actually found out about Women Heart through uh, a patient of mine during my travel assignments. She was a congestive heart failure patient, and she told me about Women Heart, the organization for women with heart disease, and I had an interest of it. I was like, I gotta know this. I need to see what this is all about. And during that time, it was the last two days to apply as one of the ambassadors for it. The champions. Yes. And I'm like, I'm gonna, I'm just going to put my name in. Why not? I'll put in my story. I'll put my name in. Let's see. We'll figure it out. Next thing I know, I'm in Minnesota. I'm like, wow. Just to see like how many women who have heart disease all in one room. Like I would have never known. I think I was the youngest one who was in that room or maybe the youngest one ever. <laughs> who has ever joined Women Heart. They were wondering about me, like, what happened to me? You're so young. Like, why are you here? And I told them my story. And it's the same reaction. Like, wow, you're, you're just amazing. You're a warrior and everything. But, you know, deep inside, I just felt like, you know, there was something that was kind of, there was something that was making me sad, but I just didn't know. And during one of the sessions in Women Heart, when we were meditating, one of these ladies said, I just didn't have time to grieve for myself. That hit me. That was like a light bulb moment. 
I didn't have time to grieve for myself. And then I flashed back into the time where I was recovering, when I was jogging, when I was running, when I was working towards this goal, when I was when I was running and jogging and walking in the LA marathon, that just hit me. I was like, oh my God, I was just so focused on getting better physically. I just did not realize that there's a huge cut on my chest and life will not be the same. People won't look at me eyes first. They're just going to look at my scar first. And that's how it's been until now. Like, you know, people don't look at my eyes first. They look at the scar. They will always recognize me as the girl with the scar on her chest, the young girl with the scar on her chest. And that kind of clicked because like now it's a new identity that I have to kind of get used to. And it took me a while, you know, just to realize like, wow, this scar has changed me physically, but also out towards people. There are times where I am happy with the scar and there are times where I'm not, especially a person my age. No one my age during that time at 28, at 30, at 31, they don't go through open heart surgery like this. I mean, some of them, they had it younger as a baby. But to be in an age where, you know, social media, where appearance is everything, where in this age, you're kind of expected to be you know, healthy and just be quote unquote perfect, but we're way outfield on that, at least for me. But it took a while to kind of embrace this kind of scar because this is now who I am. This is what gave me a second chance in life. This second life is beautiful, honestly. I always consider like October being my second birthday because without it, I would have got into, um, congestive heart failure if I never had a fixed severe case of congestive heart failure. So this little scar is everything to me and no, and no one can ever like take that away from me ever. And I do have it on my arm actually to commemorate my own little scar. I actually have this little tiny person. I have this little woman here, which is supposed to be me. And she has a little scar on the middle. looks exactly the same as my own. And, you know, I take pride in that. I have to interject something. I'm 45 now. I was 42 when I had my surgery. And it's interesting, my relationship with my scar. And it's just proof that everyone's heart journey is very individualized. And I don't find people looking at my scar, but also I live in Eastern Idaho where it snows seven months out of the year. So I'm not wearing a lot of clothes that show a lot of my chest, but it's just interesting to hear your experience because it's just been completely different from mine. And we're kind of the same amount of distance out from our surgeries. And it just got me thinking like, do I even think about my scar anymore? And I don't, I thought I would always obsess about it and stare at it and notice it. And I don't even think my husband notices. It's just, I think we've moved on in a lot of ways. You know, for listeners, like everybody's journey is going to be different with their bodies. And I think that if I had been your age, when I went through my surgery, I think I would have had the same journey that you did. I think it's decade dependent. Yeah, correct. I really think that way too. Even dress shopping was interesting. I actually got married last Friday. Last Friday? 
Yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> I got married to my my boyfriend, fiance. Your caregiver during the time. Yeah. He he's so wonderful. And I've heard from my mother-in-law if I should wear a dress that covers this. And I'm like, no, Mm-mm. it's going to show. And I saw like sneak peeks of my wedding photos and I'm like, oh, it shows and it's still incredible. And I'm so glad that I married my caregiver, my boyfriend, my fiance. Like he's such a wonderful person. He did not have to do these things for me. He did not have to take care of me. He wasn't obligated to do it, but he chose to do it. And I'm, you know, very fortunate to have that kind of person, you know, because it's sometimes it's rare. Sometimes it's rare to find someone who can devote their time to take care of you. And he really took good care of me. I mean, he's a physical therapist, like sure. He helped me get up from bed. He helped me walk and he just made sure that I'm functionally good. I think being a caregiver does take a lot out of a person, honestly. I'm just very lucky that he did not have to be so hands-on with me. For an extended amount of time, but it's good to have a good support that walks with you on this kind of journey, even though they may not know what went on, what goes on with you. Like, it's nice to have someone who is there for you. Oh, absolutely. Well, as we wrap up, what is one piece of advice you have for those facing open heart surgery? One piece of advice would be stick to your regimen and also develop good habits that will lead you to a better recovery. If you haven't exercised before your heart surgery, you should do it after because it can go one or two ways. Let's say after heart surgery, you realize that it is a second chance in life. You take that path and then you just thrive from it. But it can also go another way. Some people see that open heart surgery is like, you know, I just had surgery. I just feel sick. I'm in this sick body now. Like it can lead another way. You choose the path that you take. You choose the way that you want to see this surgery and how it would either benefit you. Either it will benefit you more or you just see it as a way of it being a signal that you're sick. You know, it's all mental, honestly. It's mental, physical, emotional. Just take whatever you can. And I hope you see the good in it. You see the benefit of it. And I hope that you can thrive from that kind of surgery. That's the best advice I can give. That's great advice. And I I ask every person I interview that same question. So Jackie Avalon, thank you so much for sharing your incredible story from Los Angeles. And in the show notes, I'll have all of the conditions that she faced in her heart surgery and a link to Cedar sinai and also a link to Women Heart because it is an incredible organization for women by women. Thank you so much. Thank you for sharing a few heartbeats of your day with me today. Please be sure to follow or subscribe to this podcast wherever you are listening. Share with a friend who will value what we discussed. Go to either Apple Podcasts and write us a review or mark those stars on Spotify. I read these and your feedback is so encouraging and it also helps others find this podcast. 
Also, please feel free to drop me a note at boots at theheartchamberpodcast.com. I truly want to know how you're doing and if this podcast has been a source of hope, inspiration, and healing for you. Again, I am your host, Boots Knighton, and thanks for listening. Be sure to tune in next Tuesday for another episode of The Heart Chamber.